0: So about a month ago, I went into our shed to pull out the lawnmower to give our lawn its first cut of the season. And like a lot of sheds, no matter how often you go in there and organize and clean and put things away, it, it, it's just one of those places that, that, that entropy and decay just sent, t- tends to, to rest on it. You know, it just, The organization always comes undone, and it's really impossible to keep it clutter-free. And so there's this corner where I keep... Um, the lawnmower, and right there, I found a crusty pot of soil. It was it was cl- clearly had been in there since last season. It hadn't been touched, and it was you know you, you know when those uh, when when it dries up, the the soil kind of uh, 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 pulls in, and it doesn't even touch the sides anymore because there's no moisture at all left in in it. And there were these withered, dried up leaves um, on the top of it, and I thought, you know, who put this dead plant here? You know. And, uh, but instead of taking care of it and getting rid of it, I just moved it to the side because I was there to, to mow the lawn and I got it out uh, and, uh, and mowed and went about my, my task. Well, you know, then a couple weeks go by and I'm back there again uh, to mow the lawn and I saw the pot. But this time something had changed. Sprouting up out of the dried soil were these fragile, pale, Yellow shoots. I mean, it looked like a ghost plant. I mean, it had no green in it whatsoever. They were very, you know, uh, 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 frail. They were just kind of hanging on. I really didn't grow under these conditions water and sunlight. Um, that said, what was growing wasn't healthy and it wasn't going to make it without giving that plant what it needed to grow. So I took the plant outside, I gave it some water. And I just thought, hey, what could, you know, I wanna see what happens here. And I put it out in the sunlight and I let it, uh, let it get what it needed and I watered it and I cut away the, the dried, withered stuff that was getting in the way. And after a few days in the sun, uh, the plant took on a vibrant green. It was unbelievable. It, it, it changed really just in a matter of a few days. Uh, you see, without light, uh, the, the process of photosynthesis wasn't able to to happen. That's why it was so pale yellow. Um, and and without water it it didn't have any stability but but with sunlight and with water the the normal process of photosynthesis was able to happen so it was able to feed itself and the water was able to to go down and the roots were able to to kind of come alive again and to pull that nutrient those nutrients from the soil back in um, to the plant and just after a few days it was like this this plant had just come alive in a way that that it hadn't before Just like plants need sunlight and water to grow, our faith needs certain things to grow. Such that without it, we are just fragile, pale, yellow substances and not really vibrant. In today's passage in Genesis 26, we see Isaac's faith grow despite the fact that he goes through adversity. He engages in sin and he has untold um, conflict in his life. And in fact, it's in this soil, it's with these things that his faith begins to grow. And we often think that adversity and sin and conflict are the things that damage our faith and and keep it from growing. But here we see that God uses these things to actually grow his faith. Chapter 26 is the only chapter that really focuses on Isaac's life. It's interesting. We hear a lot about Isaac uh, in the book of Genesis, but it's all about uh, this the son of promise that's coming. There's the the story of of him on Mount Moriah, and really that's about Abraham's faith. He's kind of a secondary character. This is really the only chapter devoted to Isaac's life where he's the main character. And if you read the whole chapter of Genesis 26, it kind of sounds like a run. Of Abraham's life. It's kind of like uh, these 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 moments in Abraham's life. He replays and, um, and he has some of the same identical struggles and some of the same situations. You could almost take the name Isaac out, put the name Abraham in, and it would sound like some of the earlier chapters of Genesis. But it's in this chapter that we get this overview of his life and we see how his faith grows and matures. And as we study Genesis 26 this morning, we're going to learn three ways that our faith can grow just like Isaac's faith grew. In verses one through five we're going to see that our faith grows by remembering God's promises. That's the first point today that uh, when we remember God's promises um, our faith grows. Very quickly and very easily doubt and fear can set in and it can choke out our faith. First it can make us wonder if God is really for us. And it's in those places, those dark moments, we can easily forget the promises of God. Two of the most common commands in the Bible are do not fear and remember. And there's a reason because of that. Because we're easily tempted to forget and we're easily tempted to fear. And we need to hold on to the promises of God so that our faith can be stabilized and grow. The second thing we're going to learn this morning in verses 6 through 11 is that our faith grows when our sin is exposed. Our faith grows by exposing our sin. Sin, you, you don't want to sin to grow your faith. But when you do, and it's—and uh, and we will, we will all fall short of the glory of God. It, we need to get that sin into the light. Just in the same way that that plant needed to get into the light. Our sin needs to be exposed um, in the light of day. So that We can uproot the unbelief in our heart so that our faith can grow. And then finally through verses 12 through 33, we're going to see. That our faith grows by persevering through adversity. It's very common. I hear this a lot as a pastor when, when uh, times are tough or people are going through hard things. We often think that God is punishing us. That God has, uh, is trying to uh, chastise us. But actually, I think God brings adversity into our lives so that uh, we can grow. Faith grows in the soil of adversity. It's actually what makes us strong. And without adversity, the roots of our faith cannot grow deep. Our faith grows by persevering through adversity. So let's start in verse 1 to see our first point today, that our faith grows by remembering God's promises. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, I think when we hear the word famine, it's one of those words that kind of falls deaf on modern ears. I mean, how many of you have lived through a famine before? Not those like um, days where you're like, I'm so hungry, I'm famished. That's not a famine, guys. Okay? Okay. That's just it's been a few minutes since you've eaten last. In our global economy, we live in a really privileged place, in a privileged world. So the word famine is just about meaningless to us. A a famine is when there is no food. It's scarce and it's likely caused because there's been a drought. And when you live in an agrarian uh, society where you have to grow crops and you have to raise livestock and and there's no no water and plants are dying and crops are dying, there is no food. You can't just run out to market basket and pick up a few things. Because we live in a global economy. If one area of the world um, is, is having a drought, you know you you can get food from another place that might not be experiencing a drought and so there's almost always food on the shelves but in this time and place there's no such thing as a supermarket there's no food stores to just go and get the food and so when there's no water crops can't grow animals can't eat and people starve to death and if you're a nomadic sojourner like Isaac when the water runs dry and famine hits, you have to pick up your uh, dwelling place and you have to move. You have to go where there's water and food. And if this sounds familiar, it should because Abraham faced a famine shortly after he arrived in the promised land. Just think about that. God says, um, trust me, believe in me, leave all the comforts and securities of your home, go to the land that I will show you. Abraham gets here He says, this is the promised land and a famine hits. Right, God, you brought me all the way out here to die. And his solution was to go down to Egypt. Why would he do that? Well, there's a river there, the Nile, that never runs dry. And so there's almost always water and food and plenty. And if you remember in Genesis 12, that didn't work out well for him to leave the promised land and go down. He uh, passes Sarah off as his sister. Pharaoh takes her and uh, before he could lay with her, um, plagues just start hitting um, all of uh, of Egypt, which is kind of a foretaste of what's to come for them in uh, a few hundred years. Now Isaac is facing a famine in his lifetime. And like his father, he packs up to go find food and water. And the first place he goes to is this land of uh, Gerar. It's the land of the Philistines. It's near the coast. So maybe Isaac is thinking, hey, maybe they've got Uh, food and water and maybe they are able to grow crops and so he heads over there and if nothing else it's kind of an access road to go down into Egypt but as the rest of the story will show drought and famine has hit this land as well and access to water is a struggle and so before he packs up and heads down for the the Nile River in Egypt the Lord comes to Isaac and he gives him a very clear directive he says do not go To Egypt, but dwell in the land that I will tell you. And so the Lord goes on here's the land where, where I want you to go. He says, Sojourn in this land. Basically, he's saying, Stay put. And here's my promise I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands and will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my boys and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So God tells uh, Isaac to stay put, to stay in Gerar. And apparently God has work to do in Isaac's life and Gerar will be the place where the work is to be done. Now, he doesn't tell Isaac where to find food and water. He doesn't tell, you know, he doesn't give Isaac some detailed play by play, line by line plan of how to survive in the midst of famine. He doesn't give him, you know, a survivor's guide to, a, to, uh, to living through uh, 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 the famine. But what he does give Isaac is far better and more valuable. He tells Isaac, I will be with you. I will be with you. He gives Isaac the promise of his presence. And because he's told them that he will multiply him, he will bless him, in addition to the promise of his presence, he's also telling him he will provide for him, that he will protect him in this new place for him. He reminds Isaac of his commitment to him and his family. See, Isaac has already taken the mantle as the covenant head. Abraham has died. The baton has been passed on uh, to Isaac. In chapter 25, verse 11, uh, we learn that after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. So there's been this, this covenantal passing ceremony. So this isn't new news to Isaac. And yet, God is reminding him of his promise. If you remember last week in chapter 25, we remember that Isaac, after 20 long years, had prayed for his wife, Rebecca to have a child because she was barren. So we know that Isaac is already a man of faith. He's not not coming into a new relationship with God. He is a believer. He is the son of promise. He believes in God, and yet in this moment, he's facing famine, And he needs to be reminded of God's promises to bless him and his descendants. He needs to know that God is with him. There are a few things in life that can make a man feel small or insecure like not being able to provide for your family. And he's in this place of of helplessness. And it's in that place God enters in and says, every promise that I've ever made to you and to your family will come to pass. And more than that, I will be with you. How does Isaac respond to that? We see it in verse six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And that one short verse, we see Isaac's faith saying, okay, I will obey. I will stay put despite what my eyes can see. Despite that, I know if I travel down to Egypt, there'll be food and water. Despite all of that, I will stay right where I am. God is saying, stay where you are. Lean into the adversity. Trust me and know that I will be with you. Now, friends, there's no question that Isaac had doubts. There's no question that his faith was being stretched and strained by anxiety and fear. And what God gave him to grow his faith and to settle his doubts was the promise of his presence. If you had to guess how many promises there are in the Bible, how many would you say that there are? If you were to just read straight through the Bible, how many promises do you think there are in the Bible? A hundred? A thousand? Well, in 1956, a school teacher named Everett Storms from Canada made an exhaustive study of the promises in the Bible. At this point in his life, he'd already read through the Bible 26 times, and so on his 27th time, he thought, maybe I'll slow down a little bit, and as I go, anytime time I come across a promise of God, I'll, I'll make note of it, I'll write it down. And it took him about a year and a half to do it, and when he, the number he came up with was 7,487 promises made by God. 7,487. And eighty-seven promises in the Bible. Listen to what Solomon says in First Kings eight fifty-six. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to His people according to all that He promised. Listen, not one word has failed of all His good promise which He spoke by Mo- Moses His servant. Moses in Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? See, you and I, when we make promises, even our best intentions to try to make those things come true, no matter how hard we try, sometimes our promises don't come true. We're unable to fulfill them because of circumstances outside of our control. But God is not like us. There are no circumstances outside of his control. He does not uh, speak words flippantly. And so when God promises something, every word of his comes to pass. Friends, think about the promises that have been made to us in the pages of Scripture. Let me just give you a few. In Romans 1:16 and 17, God promises salvation to all who believe in his son. Romans 8, 28 tells us that God promises that all things will work for good for his children. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, God promises to comfort us in our trials. 2 Corinthians 17, God promises new life in Christ Philippians 1.6, God promises to finish the work that he started in us. Philippians 4.6-7, God promises peace when we pray. Matthew 6.33, God promises to meet every single one of our needs. John 10.10, 10, John, Jesus promises abundant life to those who follow him. Matthew 28.20, Jesus promises to be with us as we make disciples even to the end of the age. John 14, 2 through 3, Jesus promises that he will return for us. For instance, that's just 10 of the promises. There are 7,467 more to go. And we're gonna cover each one this morning. I'm just joking. So here's a very real practical application. Some of you got worried there for a minute. Mandy was like, oh geez, here we go. Here's a very real practical application. Read your Bible and every time you come to a promise of God, write it down, underline it, think about it, pray over it, memorize it, treasure it in your heart, thank God for it. And friends, by God's grace, your faith will grow. Our faith grows as we remember the promises of God. And that brings us to our next point. Our faith grows by exposing our sin. Look with me at verse seven. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest they should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Now you remember how I told you that uh, Isaac's life has a striking resemblance of Abraham Remember, uh, Abraham has already done this he did it twice in his life and reminded that the sins of the father are often committed by their children Isaac assumed that the people of Gerar were all sexually immoral inclined to rape and murder and wife stealing and so in order to protect himself he puts Rebecca in harm's way and Moses tells us that he did it because of fear he said, Moses tells us explicitly it was for fear that he did this. And that's what was driving his decision to lie about his marriage to Rebekah. So he fears losing his life. And that fear of losing his life really comes from a place of unbelief. Fear is the, the external sin that we see. But underneath all of that sin is unbelief that God will make good on the promises that he's just made to him of giving him his presence and protection and provision. Now I point this out just to show that we are a complicated people. Our faith is not a simple binary. Either you have it and therefore you always do what is right or you don't and therefore you always do what is wrong. That's not how faith works. It's much more nuanced and complicated. So if you have faith, it doesn't mean that you never have doubt. It it doesn't mean that you never have fear. It doesn't mean that there's not unbelief mixed in with that belief. Because right now our faith is not yet perfected. Which means our faith is mingled with anti-faith. Our belief is mingled with unbelief. uh, our, Our faith isn't pure, it's polluted. We're complicated people. So on one hand, Isaac should have known better. God has come to him and promised him that he will be with him. He's the son of promise. Think about his life. He was the one. Who was laid on the altar of sacrifice on Mount Moriah? He was the one whom God provided a substitute and said, Do not harm a hair on his head. But on the other hand, Isaac is frail. He's human. He's just like you and me. He struggles with doubt and fear. One of my favorite verses over the years has been Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Psalmist writes, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. I think sometimes we forget that God knows we're human. He knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we're fragile. In the same way that a father has compassion and patience with his children, knowing that they don't have all things figured out, God has the same kind of patience and gentleness and compassion with us. He knows that we're frail physically and spiritually. He knows that we struggle with doubts and fears. He knows that our faith is imperfect and yet the same way that a father shows compassion to his children so the Lord shows compassion to us. The promises of God's presence and provision and protection are not contingent upon Isaac's perfection. I hope that's a soothing balm to you today because promises of God are contingent on his compassion and his love and his steadfast faithfulness to us which means they're guaranteed because God does not waver. He is perfect and shows steadfast love. And that's good news for us because like Isaac, we often choose paths of self-preservation over the path of faith. But God in his mercy will see his promises through to completion. Like Philippians 4 says, he will finish the good work he started in us. Let's keep on going and see what happens next. In verse eight, he says, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech king of the Philistines looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So we find that after a while it becomes apparent to Abimelech the king that Isaac and Rebekah aren't brother and sister. And we're meant to read between the Hebrew lines when it says that Isaac was laughing with Rebekah. It's kind of a play on words. Remember, Isaac's name means laughter, he laughs. And so uh, whatever they were doing, this laughing is very apparent to him that they're not brother and sister, they're husband and wife. Now some might be wondering, is this the same Abimelech that Abraham lied to all those years ago? And the answer is probably not. It's been a long time, since that time, and Abimelech's, the name Abimelech is really more of a title, and it means my father was king. And so it's this hereditary title, and so maybe the son of the other Abimelech is there, maybe it's his grandson. Either way, it's a title passed down from generation to generation. And it's the, uh, the, the, the ruler now, the king of, of Gerar. And either way, it becomes clear to Abimelech that Isaac and Rebekah are husband and wife. And so what does he do? He confronts him. Isaac's sin is brought to the light. He's exposed. And the irony of this passage is that it's the pagan king who gives Isaac a lesson in morality. See, it was Isaac who thought these guys were immoral. And so he's coming up with this, this plan. And yet it's the pagan king who says, actually, let me tell you a little something about morality. Isaac assumed that the people of Gerar wouldn't honor his marriage to Rebekah so he lied to them and he put his wife in harm's way. It's the pagan king who recognizes that had they that that because of his lie it, it really jeopardized the morality of the people of Gerar and it would have brought guilt upon them. And I think this is a great example of the universality of the law of God's law written on human Hearts. Now, I I know we live in a world where that seems to be deteriorating, but by and large, people have a sense of morality, a a sense of of right and wrong. Though it's broken, though often people suppress it, though it's often neglected, there is a sense in which all humanity has a moral compass based on universal rights and wrongs. I think it's actually one of the evidences of the existence of God. Many apologists have used it. It's called the moral argument for God. But it's what we call a conscience. That most people across time and culture know some things. That like murder is wrong. Almost every culture believes that. That rape is wrong. Stealing is wrong. We could go on. Now our conscience can be sharpened and clarified by the word of God. Or it can be dulled through um, a repeated defiance. Our consciences can become seared and essentially rendered useless. But the fact that the conscience remains at least somewhat intact is an evidence of God's grace. We would think that because of the fall, because sin is entered in, that we are as bad as we could possibly be. But God in his grace still brings that sin under his control through the conscience. Just think about how harsh and cruel our world would be if there was no such thing as a conscience. If if everybody... Uh, it, uh, did what was right in their own eyes. That being said, Abimelech ensures that everyone knows that Rebekah is Isaac's wife and that no one is to touch her. And it's in this moment that his sin is exposed and the unbelief of his heart is brought to light. See, what happened is he stopped fearing and trusting in the Lord and that fear led him to fear the Philistines and trust in his own Ways in his own plan. He probably believed that God would be with him in theory, but in practice, he thought he had to come up with some kind of solution to protect himself. See, he didn't deny the the theology of God's word, but he denied it in practice. If you had asked him on a theology test, hey, is God sovereign? Is God in control? Will God protect you and provide for you? He probably would have said yes. But in the moment, in practice, he denied it. You see, it's one thing for us to affirm a theological truth that God is with us. But it's another to have that truth, God is with us, inform and, and direct and motivate your every single decision. Isaac needed to have his sin exposed and his unbelief brought to the surface so that his faith could grow. So just think about a garden. How many gardeners do we have in the room? A few of you? Okay. You know, whatever that plot of you know, land is, you have limited soil and nutrients. And in order for good plants to grow, you have to regularly pull out the weeds, right? Because the weeds are competing for space. They're competing for nutrients. They're competing for, for water. And if your, weed, if your garden is going to thrive, it needs to be weeded regularly so that the plants you want, the good plants, have room to grow and they have the nutrients they need. Our hearts are the same way. There's only so much room in our hearts. And if we want our faith to grow, we have to regularly have the weeds of sin and unbelief exposed and rooted out so that the good stuff can grow, so that our faith can grow. That's what's happening here. When our unbelief and our sin is brought to the surface, we often think that would be the most um, terrible thing to happen but it's actually in the light one of the most beautiful things that can happen because now in the light it can be rooted out now in the light it can be pulled away so friends what weeds of unbelief need to be exposed and rooted out in your life what things do you believe in theory but deny in practice maybe for some today it's the promise that god will provide for you you believe it in theory. You've heard us talk about it. You see it on the pages of scripture that God will provide for your every need. But in your heart, you wonder, will I have enough? And when that happens, money can become an object of fear. Financial security can become an idol. You see how that happens? If, if we deny that God is going to provide for me, then we think, well, I have to, maybe he'll provide most of what I need, but I need to, I need to provide the rest so there becomes a drive in you for financial security not that those are bad things but it becomes an ultimate thing it becomes an idol maybe you really don't believe that God truly loves you and accepts you you believe it in theory but you deny it in practice in your heart you have this sneaking suspicion that God couldn't possibly forgive you you know he's forgiven other people around you but you think, for that one thing I've done, there's no way God could forgive me. There's no way that God can love me as I am. For love and acceptance from someone, anyone else. If God, love and acceptance, you will look for someone else to validate you, to accept you, The list goes on. We could could go through this diagnostic here with all kinds of things. But here's a couple questions that help you diagnose your fears. What is that thing that you need in order to give your life meaning and security? When you think about your life having meaning, significance, when you think about your life being secure, what is that thing you think you have to have? Or another way to say it is this. What is that thing, if it were taken away, you would lose all sense of meaning and security? The answer, those two questions are really getting at the same exact thing. And the answer to those questions, if we're honest, can help expose our idols and our fears. Whatever the spirit is drawing to your mind, you probably can't come up with it right now. Self-reflection takes more than just a second. And so these would be good questions in your time with the Lord this week to ask and to pray about. Spirit, would you help remind me? Would you help draw to the surface what those fears might be? And as the Spirit brings them to the surface, now you can start doing the, the hard heart work of pulling out those weeds of unbelief. Our faith grows when we remember the promises of God and when our sin is exposed. And finally, our faith grows by persevering through adversity. Look at verse twelve. Isaac showed sowed in the land and reaped in that same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech came to Isaac and said, "Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we." So as Moses now details the next few years of Isaac's life, we find that God was with Isaac and his crops reaped a hundredfold. And again, I don't know that we have any farmers in the room, but that kind of yield is rare in the best of conditions. So if he was in the perfect conditions, rain every day, just the right kind of temperature, a hundredfold would be impressive. But given the conditions, they're going through a drought and through famine, this yield is is nothing short of a miracle the only explanation for this kind of success and plenty in the midst of scarcity is the hand of the lord isaac obeyed he stayed in the land that god had told him and and god blessed him with this blessing also came adversity You see that in the text that the wells that they were using, they would come behind them and fill them up. And it's important that we see both blessing and adversity together. You see, there's this dangerous belief called the prosperity gospel that teaches that God wants you to be materially wealthy and that if you have faith and do the right things, then blessings and prosperity are sure to follow. And it teaches Kind of this insidious truth that if you face any conflict and adversity or if there are times of suffering and want, it's due to a lack of faith or some moral failure on your part. Friends, that is trash theology and it has no place in the Bible. In this life, the Bible teaches that we'll have both blessings and conflict, reward and persecution. Now hear me. God is not opposed to blessing his people with material wealth. There will be plenty of people who will be uh, very, very wealthy, and God will bless them, and it's a gift from him. There's many people in the Bible who are extremely wealthy. We find right here, Isaac becomes extremely wealthy. He is blessed beyond anyone in that time, in that land. Crops a hundredfold, livestock. It was God's good grace to do that. That said, the Bible never promises or guarantees that all believers in this life will be blessed like that. God does not operate by karma, but by grace. See, the prosperity gospel teaches karma that you get what you deserve. And if you're, not, if you're receiving good things, it's because you deserve it. But if you receive bad things, it's because you're at fault. God doesn't operate like that. He operates... By grace. And in his grace, adversity and persecution are never wasted. And so when God blesses us, there's almost always coupled with it adversity. And because God is a good and loving father, he doesn't waste that adversity. He doesn't waste that conflict. He actually uses it to deepen and grow our faith. You see that in Isaac's life. His success drew the envy of those around him. That's what caused them, driven by their jealousy, to fill up all of these wells that Abraham, his father, had dug. They're thinking, you know, maybe if we fill up these wells, he won't have so much success. And what does this conflict and adversity do? It deepened his faith. See, after Abimelech told him to pack his things and go, look what happened next in verse 17. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he named the name of the well Esek, because they contended with them. And then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. And so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So we see that he gets kicked out of the place where he's um, had success and he has to move to another region of Gerar and conflict follows him. You would think that after kicking him out they would just leave him alone. But as he leaves there they keep kind of coming behind him. Every time they dig a well there's this uh, these herds would come and vandalize it and they fill it back up and and they quarrel over it saying that's our well. And they'd lay claim to it. It. And so that first one he he dug that he called Esek, which means contention. I love that. Always pay attention to Hebrew names. They, they name things uh, uh, for significant things. He's saying that well that we uh dug, which was supposed to be life-giving, has now become a thing of contention. And the other one named Sitna means hostility. They're saying everywhere we go, there's contention and hostility. Do you see the blessing coupled with adversity? But did he give up? Did he blame God? Did he have that that whiny temper tantrum kind of moment where he's like, God, everywhere I go, I dig wells and people just fill them up. Did he abandon his faith? No, he kept on going. And he persevered through adversity. And finally he dug a well that they didn't quarrel over him for it. And he named it Rehoboth, which means room. The Lord has made room for us. You just think about that. The presence and promise of God would provide. And so he goes and digs well after well. And finally, he attributes the Lord has made room for us. This is a blessing from God. He trusted that in God's timing and in God's ways, the Lord would make room for his people. God had told them, I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will give you this land. And and underneath all that is, okay, he's going to give us this place. He's going to make room for us. Persecution and conflict would come. Yet despite the famine, uh, Isaac was always able to find water. He was able to find a place and that led him to worship the Lord. We see that in the, the next few verses. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So how does his faith grow? We see that in the midst of adversity, his faith grew as he endures and perseveres. He didn't give up. He continued to persevere. It's what James teaches us in his epistle, James 1, 2 through 4. James says, Count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how does our faith be perfect? become perfect and complete? It's through, like James tells us, like this story of Isaac shows us, through trials of various kinds. See, when our faith is tested, the stress and strain cause the roots of our faith to go deep. In fact, Isaac persevered through adversity to the point that his life had become a powerful witness to those around him. In other words, his roots of faith produced fruit that others could see. Verse 26 says, When Lech went to him from Gerar with uh, Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. That you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So after years of envy and jealousy, after years of trying to trip up Isaac at every turn, what happens? They see that this man is blessed by the Lord. I love that he's like, hey, we never did anything to you. Remember that? That's called revisionist history. That's not true. They were trying to trip him up at every point. But regardless, what Abimelech says to him is is important. He says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. There's no denying, Abimelech says, after all that's happened, that the Lord has been with you. Friends, do people see your life? Do they see your daily walk with Christ and come to the conclusion, we see plainly that the Lord is with you? Isaac's faith like his father's was not perfect we don't we don't have to have perfect faith either right this is the same Abimelech that that saw Isaac lie to him about his wife so he's seen Isaac in his failure but he's also seen Isaac persevere through adversity and over time he's seen Isaac's faith grow and he's come to this conclusion the Lord has been with him Isaac's faith, just like ours, needed maturing and growth. And by God's grace, his faith deepened and grew. It didn't come easy, but it came through adversity. Isaac persevered and his faith grew strong. And so as you think about applying this part of the text to your life, I want you, the next time you're going through a season of difficulty, the next time you're in a season of adversity, I want you to stop and not let your first impulse be God is punishing me, God is against me, he's not for me. I want you to go, maybe the Lord has brought me to this place of adversity, this place of conflict, so that I could lean into it and deepen my faith, so that I could trust in the Lord and not on my own understanding, because maybe God has brought me to this place to do a work in my heart to deepen my faith in such a way that couldn't have happened otherwise if not through this means. Friends, our our faith is a work in progress. And by God's grace... He is going to see that work through to completion. And your faith will grow. It will be matured as you remember the promises of God. As you commit to doing the hard work of exposing your sin so that it can can be brought to the light. As you do that hard heart work of rooting out the weeds of unbelief. And your faith will grow as you strive to persevere through adversity. And we do it all just like Isaac, knowing that God is with us. That's the thread that runs through this passage. That's the thread that runs through Isaac's life. In verse 4, God told him, I will be with you. In verse 24, God says, I am with you. And in verse 28, it's plain to Abimelech that God has been with Isaac. And what Isaac knows in drops, we know in oceans. Because Jesus is God With us. You just think about that. Isaac knew just a glimpse of what it means for God to be with us. But we know it in oceans. Jesus is God with us. He came to be near to us, He came to live for us, He came to perfect our faith, as the writer of Hebrews says. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He came to die for us. And that's not all, He came to be raised for us. And His presence is still with us today. Every believer lives with the sure and steady promise that Jesus has said, I am with you always to the very end. That's what he says right before he ascends. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age.